We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I've been making the argument over the last couple of weeks, and some of, some of you may not believe this, you may not see this as clearly, and so I want to kind of reiterate. Peter opens it up, and he addresses those he writes to as elect exiles. Now, he's making the argument not based upon a physical exile that's taken place that has displaced them from one place to another, but he's making the argument that as a Christian, earth could never be home for you. As a Christian, there's always going to be this sense of kind of discontinuity. There's always going to be this sense of this is just not right. This isn't the way things should be. There's always going to be this, this kind of wrangling inside of you. And he's making this argument to them and he addresses them as elect exiles. This past week on January the 22nd, we celebrated or at least we recognized 43 years since Roe v. Wade. 43 years of a reminder that this is not our home. 43 years and over 54 million lives in this country alone taken in the name of convenience. In the name of a lie that medical professionals sell to young girls and tell them this is the best option for you. It is private. It will not follow you around. It will not impact the rest of your life. 54 million lives, 54 million reminders that there's something radically wrong with this place. There's something radically wrong with our hearts when that number begins to sound old hat, when it doesn't impact us, when it doesn't drive us to tears, both for those children that have had their lives taken from them and those people that were led to believe that it was in the name of convenience, that it wouldn't cost them something. Let's make that number real for us. 2010 census brought in Texas at about 25 million. Now, numbers right now are coming in at about 27 million on average for the state of Texas. Twice, twice the population of this state has been aborted in the last 43 years. This is not our home. There's no political process whereby we can make it our home. Sadly, every week, every week without fail, as the Republican primary ramps up and, and you guys are deciding whether or not to vote for Bernie or Hillary and all these things are kind of going, like, they're not Republicans, they're not in that process. Okay, now you, now you get it. And, and, and there's this kind of foment, this, this thing kind of building that, oh, if we just get the right person in office, they'll bring all the things to be, and they'll bring America back to the glory day, and, and we'll see all these things restored, religious liberty restored, we'll see the family restored, we'll see poverty done away with, we'll see all these things set right. This is not our home. No political process will make this our home. No political process, and, and no matter what version of America it restores it to, can make this place our home. Whether you're most comfortable in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1920s, or you go all the way back and you say, really, since like 1777 we haven't gotten it right, so, like, so for a solid year we were nailing it, and then from there on out we missed it. No matter which version of America you desire to go back to, know this, Christian, no version of America, either in the minds of the founders or anyone since then, has ever been home for the Christian. 
This has never been our home. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are elect exiles. By the goodness of God, he called us from whence we were mired in darkness and rebellion. And we live in this place as light bearers, as those bringing salt into dark places. We minister to both those who believe as we do and especially to those who do not. Peter writes and he recognizes that in the midst of living in a place that's not your home, you're going to face difficulties, you're going to face trials. And look what he says to us in the midst of this. In the midst of all the stuff that goes wrong in a regular week, in the midst of co-workers who look down on you because you're a Christian or a spouse who looks down on you, disbelieves, in the midst of all the various forms of persecution and trials that you may go through, in the midst of all the junk in your life. Look how he opens this up, verse 6. In this you rejoice. In the midst of all these things, Peter's word to you, the word that God would give to you is rejoice. And this seems so nonsensical. It seems so ridiculous. It seems like this, this word to us, this instruction to us that's, that's overbearing, that's, that's based largely on things that are contrary to fact. The reason, the reason this is not uh, opposed to what we see, the reason this is true, the reason the Christian is able to rejoice is because of where the Christian recognizes truth and reality stemming from. We found out last week that as we went through that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. He went on to describe that living hope. He says, you are brought into this living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of this living hope, you have an inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable. This inheritance is undefiled. This inheritance is unfading. And so we went through this whole process, and he gets to the end of it. He says, the reason you're able to rejoice in the midst of all these things is because of the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you, has done for the Christian, enables them, drives them as they reflect on it to be able to rejoice even in the midst of tremendous difficulty. Even in the midst of tremendous difficulty. And so he's not coming to us and saying, hey, look, things are going to get better. It's not really that big of a deal. He's not telling us that we're able to rejoice because these things are only for a little time or because they're not real. They don't really hurt. In fact, look what he goes on to say. Verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, but then he has this concession, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's not limiting the effects of sin in this world on the Christian. In fact, as Peter will go on to describe, the Christian is not escaping the effects of of having sinful people around them, sinful people in the office place, sinful people in their home. As a Christian, this is no guarantee that your life will be trial-free. As a Christian, there is no expectation that your life will be without difficulty. If this is what you were led to believe Christianity is, a life without difficulty, a life without trial, then you are sorely disappointed. You're disappointed all day long, and in fact, the totality of your life, if that's the lie that you've come to believe, then you've thought Christianity to be a lie. 
Because it's contrary to fact. It's contrary to those things you experienced. Your wife left you. Your husband left you. Your family ostracized you. You lost your job. You've been sick. You've got some disease. All these things in life have led you to believe that life is tremendously difficult. Our ability to rejoice is not centered on, predicated on, our ability to overcome adversity. It's absolutely not. Our ability to rejoice isn't centered on hinging upon our ability to look at things and say, oh, the cup is really half full instead of half empty. These types of methodologies, when we employ them and bring them into the, facing the difficulties of our lives, are always going to be found wanting. We're always going to look at these and say, I, I just, maybe, maybe if I just looked at the glass from the right angle, it would appear to be half full, but right now, I've got to be honest, I'm not sure there's anything in the glass to begin with. Christian, your rejoicing stems from the work Jesus did in you. This is always the place of rejoicing for the Christian. This is always the place of rejoicing for the Christian. James brings along kind of a, a, a side perspective, but, and so I, I want to look at that because I want to address it from the perspective of Peter. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, difficulties. Count it all joy when you, when you receive difficult things. And you're like, James, you're a sadist. I don't understand. Why would you be saying this? What kinds of trials? He says various. And so what about this? Oh, that's, that, that's included because I did say various. Now, why does James look at it? Look what James goes on to say. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. As James looks at difficulty in the life of the Christian, He's not writing about it and saying, it, it, it's fun to suffer. It's fun to suffer. Me and my buddies, we get around and we talk about who has suffered the most and the person that has. We give them a round of applause and say, bravo, man, you suffered the most. We can tell because you're smiling the most. No, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. James's point is that a Christian, when you go into suffering with a proper perspective, you are able to count it all joy because of the end product of your suffering. But what Peter's describing here is the Christian is able to even go into that suffering on the basis of the work that Christ has done in them. They're able to go into that suffering already rejoicing. From Peter's perspective, your rejoicing isn't centered on what you will be someday. It's what you already are today. Do you see the distinctive there and the difference? James is headed towards one direction, and Peter finds this at the very beginning of any and all suffering. He says, in this you rejoice. Hmm. It's a difficult thing to do, though. To gather together, to open yourself up, to be around others, to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Now what I want you to understand is that James is, is, is headed to one direction, but Peter, as he looks at this, he's addressing a group of people. One of the reasons that so many of us find it so difficult to rejoice in the middle of trials is because we're trying to do it alone. 
it's as if you think that there's somehow God is more impressed either because you went through this thing on your own or you don't trust the people around you to share and to shoulder your burden. Recognize that as Peter writes this group of people, it is never entering into his mind that people would be so foolish as to try and go through the difficulties of life alone. If you're going through the difficulties of life alone, if you don't have a close, close group of people that you can share with, that can walk alongside you, you will never be able to make it. You will likely delude yourself into believing that you're doing quite well, when in reality, if you allowed two or three other good close brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and you shared the deepest hurts of your hearts, they would say, that's not right. That's not right. This is too much for you. It's too difficult for you. We need to be a people that open up with one another. We need to be a people that share our trials with one another, not so that people can look at us and and, and think of us and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think of Valerie and that she lives with Matt, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think of Mitzi and that she lives with Ken, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't do this to elicit some, some... sort of sympathy we do it because we need others to walk alongside with us we need them to help drive us to rejoicing that we need them to help keep us from believing the lies of the enemy that that things are always going to be miserable and there's nothing in this life to rejoice about the rejoicing centers for the christian on the work of jesus and we need others to help remind us of that truth look at verse seven verse seven He says, we're going to go through all these various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James's perspective as he looks at it, and he looks at suffering, is the perfection of your faith. And so it's stripping away all the junk in your life. You recognize that as you go through these things, there are things of supreme importance and there are things of tertiary importance. And you begin to rate these things and you understand what's true and what's false. And so James views suffering as kind of this spiritual vetting process that's going on in our lives. But look what Peter supposes. Peter supposes, as he looks at this group, that testing these trials will reveal something. What does he call it? He says the tested genuineness of your faith this tested genuineness of your faith will be shown hmm. the interesting thing that is peter looks at this he's not descri- he's not describing it in terms of what james is peter looks at it and he says that you already have a solid faith he writes to these people, he says that the reason you're going to go through these things, the reason that you're able to rejoice in the middle of it is so that the tested genuineness of your faith might be revealed. He supposes that it already exists. Now this is troubling. This is troubling. When we look at it and we begin to ask the question of, do I already have a solid and established faith? But for Peter, in the way that he's looking at it, he looks at it and he says, absolutely you do. So from whence does this solid and established faith come from? Does it come from you and your ability to to gird up your loins or tightroll your jeans or whatever it is that you're doing to prepare yourself to go in the midst of it? Absolutely not. For the Christian, 
the ability to have a tested genuineness of your faith stems from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what has Jesus done so far in this passage in 1 Peter as we've looked at it? He saved you. His resurrection from the dead has brought you into new life. You have been made alive, and as such, there is a tested genuineness of your faith. It is revealed through various trials and suffering. This is what James is talking about. And so for the Christian, you're in the midst of trials and difficulties. Your prayer centers on, God, I pray that you would reveal the tested genuineness of my faith. God, I pray that that this would be working in me. Help me more fully to depend upon you, more fully to lean upon you. And this tested genuineness of faith is more this ever-increasing role of Jesus in your life. It's not more of you. It's not some better uh, image of you. It's not some better product of you. It's not the final and finished version of you. It is just more and more of Jesus and less and less of you. It's counter to everything we encounter. Every January, countless people fool themselves into believing this will be the year for physical fitness. This will be the year for physical fitness. It's why I typically start in February. I don't want to be in there with them. They're sad. They make me sad. But every year they go in, this will be the year for physical fitness. They're working towards some goal. They recognize that unless they make their heart beat faster and go... (laughs) And sweat profusely on the people around them, this won't become this. You know, arms won't get bigger. All these things won't get better unless they put out and, and, and dedicate themselves to the process. It's skipping meals. It's eating rice cakes. Nobody does that for fun. It's, it's subjecting themselves to this process so that they might turn out better, in better shape, so that their heart might beat uh, longer and fewer times during the day. And so every year we see this process kick up again. December rolls around and it's, I might have another piece of pie. I'm going to work out in January. And so that's the thing. And so one piece of pie turns out to a whole armful of pies. And the next thing you know, they're push, pushing a deuce 50 and they're two feet tall, right? You're like, how does that happen? You roll them in sideways. And so as we think about our process and we think about all the things we go through in life, do we want to get smarter? We read books. We go to school. We go to college. We want to gain wisdom. You read through Proverbs. And so all this thing is centered on us ingesting certain things and exerting ourselves in certain ways. But what we recognize is that when it comes to our spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ, it is centered solely on the person of Jesus and his effectual work in your heart. There is nothing, there is nothing you can do to make yourself more saved. In fact, the Christian walk, what it really is, is a process not of of bringing in more attributes, but of divesting yourselves of those things which are of the flesh, ridding yourself of that sense of self-reliance, ridding yourself of that sense of pride, ridding yourself of that sense of, I can do this, I can make it through this, I don't need anybody to help me, friend, you absolutely do. And the first person that you need to fully depend upon is Jesus. And he comes in and he did an amazing work in your heart. And he changes you. Not so that you can begin to start to take over yourself. Like when you learn to drive. Like when you learn to drive, you're sitting on your dad's lap or whoever's lap. And they're letting you drive. And they're like, you got the wheel. And you're like, ditch! 
That's what I did. And then when I turned 18, I could finally do it on my own. No? Okay. 23, 23. It's not that when you get saved, Jesus says, oh, finally, Peter was such a mess, but I saved him, and now he's okay. Larry was such a mess, but I saved him, and now he's okay. Linda was such a mess, but I saved her, and now she's okay. Justin was, well, let's, we all know this. He's such, he's such a mess, but I saved him, and he's, he's, he's you know, you know, okay. It's salvation. He makes you so much more than okay. It's salvation. It comes into this part, and, and perhaps it's because it's salvation. We finally recognize how incredibly sinful we are, how far away we are from God. We're humble and broken before God, and so we're fully able to imbibe all of his graciousness and all of his goodness to us in that moment. And from that moment, over the duration of your life, the tested genuineness of your faith can be revealed through trials and through difficulties. Rest, trust, rely upon Jesus. Look what he goes on to say about your faith. He says, this, this faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Your faith, the faith that God gave you, the faith that he is causing you to live through, the faith that tethers you to him is far more precious than gold. Peter, in his mind, thought of the most precious thing he could in his day, and he labeled it as gold. And we all know that gold, it is, as it is subjected to heat, to fire, this dross, this impure elements begin to come up off it. But what he's talking about in terms of our faith isn't so much a comparison of the same process of how gold is made pure, but instead it's just a blanket statement. Your faith is far more precious than gold. Your faith is far more precious than any thing that you might assign tremendous value to. It's more precious than your health. It's more precious than your family. It's more precious than your house. It's more precious than your 401k. It's more precious than a Republican nominee who could go on to secure victory in 2016. Your faith is infinitely more precious than anything that you might decide has supreme value. All things pale in comparison to the degree to which your faith is valuable. Now look, look what he says here. This is curious. He says that if the revelation of Jesus Christ, the tested genuineness of your faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. There's this amazing picture of what takes place here. The Christian lives their life and either Jesus returns or they die and they meet him in glory. And what Peter says takes place is that in that moment, the Christian receives praise, glory, and honor. In that moment, as you stand before your maker, the word that he replies to a Christian is, well done, good and faithful servant. For whatever reason, and I'm convinced it's not an American uh, imposition on the gospel, but it is a human imposition on the gospel. We have allowed this understanding that, that once we are a Christian, effectively we can, we can let some things slide, we can be mature in some ways, good in some ways, but, but generally God's very loving, he's very forgiving, and we don't have to answer for, for any of these things. Now Peter paints this wonderful picture that at this revelation we will receive praise, glory, and honor, but I want you to understand what will take place at either Christ's return or your death and when you meet him. So we're going to look at three places. Look first, just turn a little bit to the right in Second Peter chapter 
3 and verse 10. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, describing what it will be like when Christ returns, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth, and listen to this, and all the works done on it will be exposed. Christian, you will give an account for every wayward word, for every wayward thought, for every wayward deed. Everyone. Are you forgiven? Are you able to inherit eternity based upon the finished work of Jesus? Absolutely. But your work here on earth is not done. Your work here on earth isn't to imbibe all the pleasures that you may see fit. In fact, as we continue to look, what we recognize is that we have to give a response for everything we've ever done. There are things in my past that grieve me. And I recognize that someday I'll have to stand before God and I'll have to give an account for each one of those things that I've done. Paul, writing on the same subject in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And finally, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. To listen to these words, and we're going to unpack this just briefly. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Probably our chief biggest problem is this, this insipid movement towards works-based righteousness. The understanding that God is somehow duly impressed by, by our ability to do enough of the good and right things and not do as many of the bad and awful things. This is effectively what Jesus is describing there in Matthew chapter 7. That these guys come up to him and to break it into our kind of modern vernacular. Look at all the stuff I did for you. Man, I told people about Jesus. I attended church. 10% is, is the line for tithing. That, I mean, I had the inverse model. I'm giving 90, living on 10. I'm going on mission trips. I'm funding others. In fact, I just took, I took a vow of poverty. I gave everything I had to the poor and I lived in the slums of Delhi. I did all these things. The person who looks at what they do for God as a favor to God or views them as somehow giving them a better stature, a better place before God does not understand Grace. They do not understand the gospel. If the reason you are doing things, either serving at this church, serving in your family, or giving financially to any organization, if the reason you're doing these things is out of some sense of guilt that you're trying to assuage, some sense of, oh, if I just do these things, I can, I can account for, I can atone for the things I've done in the past, you don't understand the gospel. 
desperately wish I could make you all believe this. It's so important that we get this. I fear that over and over again we raise up a generation of rule followers who think that they relate to God the same way they relate to their parents. Children relate to the parents that if they do the right things enough of the time, their parents don't get upset, they don't get spankings, they don't stand in the corner, or whatever form of punishment you've brought, that somehow our kids bring that same method and understanding and they begin to apply it to God and they relate to God in the same way. Recognize how incredibly important it is that we don't mess up in this. That we're never communicating to people that Christianity is just a rules-oriented faith. That it's something, well, you've got to do this and not this. And you've got to be at church on Sunday, you've got to be at church on Wednesday, you've got to give your tithe. And if you don't know how to do that, I can set you up with a CPA. She can help you. Such a sad thing that we end up making our faith into. It's such a sad thing. Not recognizing that there will come a time when we stand before God and the only thing that any of us better save when we're in line is we fall on the mercy of God. We fall on the faith in the Son and in His resurrection that has brought us life and on no good deed that we've ever done. Do you understand me? The only good deed that brings us into life eternal with the Father is the good deed done by the Son on behalf of all those who are in the midst of rebellion. This is the truth we see in the gospel. Now look here in verse 8. In verse 8, he, he finds us really in the midst of, of where we are. We really resonate with this. He says, though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, verse 9, the salvation of your souls. Has anybody in here bodily seen Jesus? No? Okay. There's always one guy in the back who's like, what did he say? Raise hand. It's okay, friend. We'll talk later. So we find ourselves in very much being in the same way, in the same place that those Peter wrote to. Peter wrote to a group of people not very many years removed from the resurrection, but by distance, by location, they weren't there. They never saw Jesus. They never walked with Jesus. But look what he goes on to write about them. Though you, what? Verse 8. Though you have not seen him. You didn't see him in the past. Though you haven't seen him, you what? You love him. Our loving of Jesus isn't dependent upon us having a a physical, bodily interaction with him. Peter's driving at this faith union that the Christian has with an almighty God. The faith union the Christian have is what allows them to love God. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Look what he goes on. He says, look, you didn't see him in the past. You don't see him now. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And in believing in him, you rejoice. With joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The reason that Christian, and he's coming back to it here. The reason that Christian is able to rejoice in the middle of trial, suffering, and difficulty centers upon their faith union with Jesus. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. 
Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. And look how he describes this joy. He does very much the same thing that he did when he described the inheritance. When it came to describing the inheritance, Peter said, all, wor- all words fail. So he described it in terms of what it's not. He said, your inheritance is imperishable. Your inheritance is undefiled. Your inheritance is unfading. And when Peter wanted to describe the way the Christian is able to rejoice and how great and tremendous this joy is, look what he says. He says, it is inexpressible. All words fail. Whether you would choose to worship through hymns, through Gregorian chant, or modern Persian worship music, all these things fail to adequately convey and express the joy that's able to be had on the part of the Christian. Whether you look at it and you say, oh, but, 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 pastor, this song, that song, this feeling, this poem, all these things fail and are impoverished because it's so incredibly wonderful. We look at all of them and say that they are anemic, emaciated, and futile. He says, you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believed in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. I absolutely believe the Holy Spirit enlivens our worship. It really doesn't matter what songs we sing, what things we say. If the Holy Spirit is not moving in the heart of the Christian, all of our worship is impotent. Do you understand that? There's no rule of faith, there's no rule of worship, there's no magic formula that you can write whereby God hears that and he says, oh, oh my goodness, he, she has the most amazing voice, angels gather around, you must hear this person, I am moved to tears. It's ridiculous. Unless the spirit moves in our hearts, all of our worship is awful and ugly. It's words, we might as well be reading a dictionary or a tax code Lest we have the movement of the Spirit in our worship, all our rejoicing is empty demonstrations of physicality. It's hand-raising, it's tears, it's emotional drivel. Lest the Holy Spirit move in our hearts, all of our worship is worthless. But when the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, we can't even begin to describe it. When your non-Christian friends gather around you and you're in the midst of tremendous difficulties and suffering, whatever that is, and you're able to rejoice, and, and they ask you, and they say, explain to me, rationally help me to understand why you're able to rejoice in the midst of this tremendous sadness. You can't. You're unable to. You can describe your faith, you can describe your dependence upon Jesus, you can describe how you came to faith, but all these things are fail to be able to articulate this, this thing that's taking place inside of you. Why? Because it is inexpressible and filled with glory. It is the movement of God in your heart that allows you to rejoice in the midst of trials and difficulties. And no matter how you strive, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you would desire to, you're never going to be able to articulate it to their satisfaction. They're always going to look at it and say, so you're really just saying you hope it gets better? 
You're really just saying this is temporary. You're really just saying that it's making you to be a better person. And all of those things are wrong. The only reason the Christian is able to rejoice is because of the work of God done in their hearts, wrought by the sacrificial death of Jesus. And look what he says here is our our finale, our final outcome. He says, we're able to rejoice with inexpressible joy filled with glory. Finally, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For every Christian, there awaits a final salvation. You received salvation when you came to know God, when you recognized that you were made by a creator God, that humanity rebelled against this creator God. That just as humanity rebelled, so you too rebelled against God. You chose yourself, you chose sin over God, but you recognized that God being good, wonderful, and gracious freely extended to you forgiveness. And that, through the death of his son, that Jesus Christ took on the penalty and pain of sin and death for you and that God raised him up from the dead and so doing overcame sin and death we recognize that our ability to rejoice is tied to that in receiving forgiveness from Jesus and just as we receive an initial salvation in the receiving of that free gift of extension so too we receive a final salvation in either Christ's coming or our home going amen amen would you pray with me Father, we pray that this morning that you would be working in our midst. God, that all those things that we would seek to place a high importance of and all those maybe techniques that we have formulated to help us endure difficulties, to endure trials, that we would recognize our need for you. That it is our relationship with your son that enables us to rejoice. That it's our having received forgiveness that brings us into this new life. God, I thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we pray that in these moments as we have opportunity to reflect and meditate upon that. God, that you would move in our hearts for those of us who have for too long presume this place to be home or if we just move this here or move that there or make this change or that change that you would convict us convict us of the truth of your word help us to know who you are and what role you're playing in our lives and so father I just ask that as we move into this time of application God that your spirit would lead us in response that we'd be submitting ourselves to you in all things. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.